Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person and online. I'm Tanea Tauber, Senior Director of Town Hall Programs. This week, the center held a two-day celebration for Juneteenth, the annual commemoration of the end of slavery in America in 1865. Long celebrated by Black communities across the United States, Juneteenth became an official federal holiday in 2021. One of the events hosted by the National Constitution Center was a conversation with William B. Allen of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education and Hassan Kwame Jeffries of The Ohio State University, exploring the history and meaning of the holiday, its connection to July 4th, the Declaration of Independence, and the Emancipation Proclamation, and more. Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, moderates. This conversation was streamed live on June 20th, 2022. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Hello, friends. Welcome to the National Constitution Center and to tonight's convening of America's Town Hall. Thank you so much for joining uh, Professor Allen and Professor Jeffries. It's such an honor to welcome both of you. And I will begin by asking the obvious question, what happened on Juneteenth and why do we celebrate it, Uh, Professor Allen? Well, I would ask you to defer to Professor Jeffries to tell that story because I believe he can give you a more complete account. Well, on June 19th, 1865, uh, in Galveston, Texas, Union General Gordon Granger uh, lands and with a, and this is important, with a fighting force of 2,000 Union troops. uh, And he delivers the, the good news that African-Americans, enslaved African-Americans had been waiting for, uh, not just uh, for two years, not just for five years, but for many generations, uh, that they were in fact free, uh, that slavery was over, that the Civil War had ended, that the Emancipation Proclamation was in full effect. Now, of course, on uh, June 20th, there were still enslaved Africans uh, in Texas. It took a while for the Union uh, forces to make their way through Texas. There were still enslaved African-Americans in uh, states that hadn't succeeded. Uh, So you still had enslaved African-Americans in uh, in Delaware and in Kentucky, and it would take until the 13th Amendment uh, to be ratified before we're really at that point saying at the end of 1865, December 6, 1865, uh, that uh, slavery in America was officially over. But Juneteenth represents, um, and, and, and there's a long history between sort of Juneteenth celebrations and, and, and when we get a federal holiday. I think Juneteenth sort of represents the emancipation moment uh, that is celebrated in African-American communities for generations at different times, uh, depending upon where you were in the country. In Texas, it's Juneteenth. Uh, you know, in many places outside of the South, it would be January 1, Emancipation Day, the day the Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect. We would see that in those watch night services. Uh, in other places, Massachusetts would celebrate December 6 uh, for quite a while, the day the uh, 13th Amendment goes into effect. Washington, D.C., uh, into the present, would celebrate their Emancipation uh, Day in April. Uh, every every year. Uh, and then, of course, by the time you get to the turn of the century, people are celebrating emancipation on Lincoln's birthday, uh, which would occur in, in, in February. So, you know, there are, there are different social and cultural reasons why Juneteenth sort of emerges most recently as the, the national holiday, the, 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 the moment where we will mark emancipation. But I think uh, it, the best way to sort of look at it beyond sort of that, the, the historical, the, 
component of like, well, not everybody's still free, most people are, but that this is just sort of marking the emancipation moment uh, when we as a nation should be coming together for the first time and recognize the historic significance of ending slavery in America. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction to the story of Juneteenth and for helping us understand that on June 19th, 1865, Mayor Granger issued a general order, I'll, I'll now quote from it, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free and newspaper accounts of the general order indicated the words all slaves were emphasized in italics. Professor Allen, Professor Jeffries talked about Juneteenth as the emancipation moment and offered a series of other dates that have been celebrated, including January 1st, when the proclamation went into effect, December 6th, when the 13th Amendment went into effect, and Lincoln's birthday in February. Do you think Juneteenth is the best day to celebrate emancipation? Or if you had to pick another one, what would it be? I would prefer to think about this from the perspective of exactly what is being celebrated and rather than what the date should be. Uh, and the reason I wanted Professor Jeffries to go first is because I learned about Juneteenth a long, long time ago, back in 1963-64, when I was a student in California and a young recent graduate from Texas, from Beaumont, came up and we became roommates and the best of friends. And he related to me the Juneteenth celebration and all the reasons for it. So I have been fully apprised of this now for over 50 years. And, and I always considered it, as he did too, as something of a joke, because what it reflected was the backwardness of East Texas. For it was not the case that elsewhere in the country, those who had been enslaved required to actually see federal troops to hear the news. They heard the news in many of the other states that were in rebellion. And they celebrated it already in many of the states that were in rebellion. Because the real question here is, what is being celebrated? Is it a specific day or is it a moral accomplishment? And I would submit that if we're going to recognize the moral accomplishment in its full grandeur, the important thing for us to do would be to celebrate it on the date at which the proclamation was issued remembering that it was already telegraphed in September of 1862. The commitment was made, do this or I'm going to do that. January 1st came, the that fell, the other shoe fell. And that had a resounding effect in the country. No, it did not emancipate all slaves. It specifically excluded those in the non-rebellious states, but it excluded them in a process that certainly envisioned their eventual freedom as well. And so what we're talking about is a moment at which the dynamics of political and social development in the United States as a country reached the pivotal point at which a commitment to freedom was made and publicly proclaimed. That's to be more important than when any particular slaves heard the news. It is the case that for 155 years, NASA's day has been celebrated in Trap, Maryland on the Eastern Shore to celebrate emancipation. So Professor Jeffries is right. People have for a long time done this and that particular celebration has gone on consistently for 155 years. So the question is, what should emerge as giving a stamp of national recognition? Is it the moment which was essentially fairly parochial in East Texas? Or should we look for a broader national platform? That would be my response. 
Fascinating. Professor Jeffries, what, what do you think of Professor Allen's suggestion that the time that the Emancipation Proclamation is a better moment to celebrate the commitment to freedom than uh, Juneteenth? Well, I think it, it, it depends on how we view the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, and I have a, 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 I think I might be a little bit more critical uh, of what the Emancipation Proclamation sort of means and how it has been interpreted. And of course, as Dr. Allen points out, I mean, no one is freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. It is absolutely a, a critical moment uh, in American history, setting the nation on a course towards liberation. Uh, but for too long, uh, we have celebrated the great emancipator, right? Lincoln as the great emancipator and not looked at uh, the aspects of the Emancipation Proclamation in terms of, you know, people in East Texas, they didn't receive word. Well, I think we could say the same thing, Dr. Allen, that, okay, the Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect. Well, how come Black folk in the States of Rebellion didn't just simply walk off their plantations then? And that is because they understood that they couldn't, right? Uh, because you still had uh, the force and the effect of the Confederacy and enslavers maintaining uh, control over these areas. Uh, and so I, I don't think it's, I, I think we can't divorce uh, the fact that, yeah, it takes, you know, uh, you know the, the Union Army, Union Army to show up uh, in Texas to say, hey, you know, things have now changed and we're here to make sure that they are, or rather than just you know, black folks sitting around like, ah, we just didn't receive word. Right? Pretty much everybody knew you know, what the Union Army, what Lincoln had done, it's the question of, can it go into effect? Uh, and so, you know, in those places, you know, in, in, in Boston and in Philadelphia, they're, they're excited about the Emancipation Proclamation. They're disappointed, obviously, they understand that there's limits to it. They're not freeing those places where Lincoln actually had the power to free people, where they had, you know, those states that were not in rebellion. But they understand that pivotal turn. Uh, and so, you know, I, 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 can, I can appreciate you know, the importance and significance, certainly, of the Emancipation Proclamation. But I think Juneteenth offers something a little bit different. And I wouldn't be, and I'm not quite ready to set it aside, uh, in the sense that it, it, it's, to me, it's less about sort of waiting for word and more about a community of people sort of on June 19th, 1866, right, who are marking it on their terms. Uh, in 1867, June 19th, who are marking it in their terms. And so it is something that is more that grows sort of organically out of the African-American community saying that we are going to commemorate this moment on our terms, looking back and making sure that we never forget and remember the institution of slavery, that we celebrate those who brought about emancipation, enslaved African-Americans working for their own freedom and liberation, and then also pausing uh, you know, to to come together as a day of rest and a day of celebration. So I like the idea of a national celebration, a national holiday that's rooted in a a, a moment that African Americans are defining for themselves, rather than just sort of sitting back and saying, "Hey, okay, you, you know, somebody, the, you know, the the great the great white hope uh, has, has has spoken, uh, and therefore uh, we are all Father Abraham has spoken." And, and out and out to freedom we went. Wonderful discussion, Professor Allen. Uh, so eager for your response to Professor Jeffrey suggests that it's worth celebrating Juneteenth because it was when African-Americans celebrated freedom on their own terms, as opposed to celebrating the great emancipator who was not able to emancipate uh, many enslaved people without the force of the Union Army, uh, which also leads to your reflections on Lincoln's constitutional legacy, which you've written about so powerfully in pieces, including your article on to preserve, protect, and defend the Emancipation Proclamation itself. 
I want to say that there was so very much conveyed in Professor Jeffrey's remarks that it would be difficult for me to give you a full response to them, but I want to start at the very top. I think that what's involved here is a case of overgeneralization, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, I think that what Professor Jeffrey's argument actually amounts to is saying the empirical reality is more important than the moral reality, and I will concede the empirical reality. There's no question about the various forms in which news spread and celebrations develop, and many of them were spontaneous, which is, I think, what he means by organic. But they were spontaneous in different places and in differing ways. So the question of what is organic is a different kind of question than what is spontaneous. I remember from John Adams on July 2nd, 1776, after everything was done said, this day will be remembered and celebrated in perpetuity, referring of course to the Declaration of Independence. And he was right, but it didn't emerge because it was declared to be a national holiday. It emerged genuinely organically and spontaneously spread across the country. In spite of the fact that there were people out in the Northwest Territory, the Ohio Valley and elsewhere who didn't hear about it for a long time thereafter. They're not hearing about it, did not make them less committed, involved and affected by it. Their dignity was as much affirmed when they didn't hear about it as was the dignity of the persons who did hear about it. And so what I'm suggesting to you is this, it's very simple. The moral accomplishment is more important than the empirical reality because we are, on the slight or thin precipice of asserting that might makes right. And it didn't matter what the moral reality was, it only mattered if the army was there. And the army could have forced and effectuate the decision, whether the decision were right or wrong. I submit it's more important that the decision were right, even if it couldn't have been effectuated. And there are so many cases throughout the whole of human history in which right principle failed because it couldn't be effectuated but which didn't make it any of the less right principle. And it is really important for a country like the United States for us to put the celebration of principle above the celebration of the force of might. So, so I would say that in these various community expressions we see, there's perfectly good reason to celebrate, to be joyful, to appreciate. But if we ask ourselves, what shall we put the stamp of national authority on, I would suggest very strongly that we make sure we accompany that national authority with moral determination and not merely empirical recognition. I would say something like Kwanzaa, which emerged spontaneously, certainly. I mean, I knew Milana Ron Karenga very well and the days when that was being formulated. And I watched it spread throughout the country to the point that Hallmark would issue greeting cards. Of course, it has since petered out. Why? because it didn't have any real foundation. It's as simple as that. And that's what I say when I say it's something of a joke. There's no real foundation there because you're not celebrating the moral principle. You're only celebrating the factuality of what happened in East Texas at that moment. And that didn't, by the way, become national organically or spontaneously. It became national by an act of government. And that's always a treacherous thing. We should always remember. Acts of government cut both ways. Organic developments don't cut both ways. What is truly organic will have staying power. What is merely positive law in force will disappear. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Professor Jeffries, your, your response to Professor Allen's suggestion that the moral reality is more important than the empirical reality. I would agree. But I think what we find in Juneteenth and with these 
uh, or emancipation, uh, emancipation moment celebrations uh, that emerge out of the African-American community various, at, at various points in time, uh, that they are in fact reflecting a moral reality, right? I mean, the moral imperative of African-Americans to celebrate the moment of freedom. I mean, they're the ones who are saying that this is important. Like our freedom, this transition from slavery to freedom is fundamentally important, not only to us, but to the nation as a whole. And so whether, however we choose to market, and I don't make a distinction between, you know, African-American communities, churches celebrating January 1, Emancipation Day, Emancipation Proclamation Day, and, and, and those in East Texas. I think they're not so much celebrating, hey, government, we appreciate, you know, the, the, the vision that you have laid out for us, but they're saying we ourselves are not only contributed to our, to our emancipation, but we ourselves are defining freedom. So I, I think for, for me, it's the celebration of freedom and the definition of it that African-Americans are instilling in and exercising the actions that they're taking that is most important to me, uh, as opposed to the turn in the government, which obviously is critically important, right? I mean, the commitment of the government to end slavery and to these principles, these, these moral legal principles are critical. But, I, but this is the one celebration where it's like, no, the people themselves are defining it. So, you know, this is, to me, this is John Adams, right? I mean, this is the people on the ground who are saying this is important to us. It just happens to be Black folk. So interesting. I hear in this really important debate, perhaps some uh, disagreement about the role of Lincoln and whether he deserves credit for, for marking the moral moment that freedom took place or whether African-Americans on, on the ground uh, deserve that credit. And, and Professor Allen, tell us about your challenging the view that Lincoln was dragged toward the emancipation policy and your argument instead that his commitment to preserving the union's purity on the slavery question, never willingly endorsing or extending the institution would sooner or later require emancipation. Tell, tell us about Lincoln's well, well, let me just say in response to that, it, it seems to me the important thing is who the people are. And, and one misses an opportunity when one defines the people in segments and doesn't discover the way in which they are one people. And the, the importance of the moral moment is to surface the reality of at least the potentiality of one people. And that's the underlying term that we're discussing here. It goes to the question of Lincoln's efforts in developing the Emancipation Proclamation, which actually originated in the first Confiscation Act, uh, which he accepted when it was first passed, but was not particularly thrilled about. And he was poised to veto the second Confiscation Act. Now, why was he poised to veto that? Because both Confiscation Acts were predicated upon identifying escaped slaves or captured slaves as contraband. It's that simple. Contraband means property. Now, it was normal procedure in international relations or in national security affairs to say that when you capture property belonging to an enemy or to a criminal, it becomes contraband. That surfaced already in 1807 when we were barring the slave trade, and they stumbled over the same thing back then. They couldn't treat the people who were being imported illegally as property at the same time as defending, prohibiting the foreign slave trade. And that led to a crisis in 1807. Well, Lincoln was thinking through exactly that issue as he approached the Emancipation Proclamation. And he had arrived at his decision to issue that long before he announced it in September. He in fact delayed it on the advice of his cabinet as early as late June 
because they were afraid that it would seem desperate since the Union Army was in desperate circumstances at the time. And they wanted to await a moment where they at least seemed to be on the verge of victory, which they got by September. So that calculating when to do a thing and calculating what to do have to be brought together in some kind of synergy in order to make it effective. And that's the process Lincoln worked through in arriving at the Emancipation Proclamation. He wasn't pushed to that by newspaper publishers or the other things he was receiving in the way of correspondence from people saying, why are you waiting? He was deliberating. He was being statesmanlike, finding the proper moment to strike when striking would make a difference in order to assure that the principle that was going to be defended had a fair chance to be established. And I think what happens with the Emancipation Proclamation is precisely that. He captures that fair chance. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the reality of social and political life. We're not talking about demonstrating, um, striking a pose. We're talking about doing something that makes a real difference in the lives of people by surfacing those principles which have the strength and the integrity to weld them into a genuine moral community. I think that's what animated Lincoln, and that's why the announcement of the proclamation is worth defending not and celebrating, not because it's the great white father, not because it was the government, not because it was non-Black people, but because it was a way of pointing to the eventuality of one people who could live on the basis together of a strong moral principle. Uh, Professor Jeffries, what is your response to Professor Allen's argument that Lincoln was acting out of principle, out of a view of the Constitution as not explicitly endorsing slavery, uh, uh, freedom national, slavery local, and his conclusion that despite the widespread view, Lincoln was compelled to emancipate the slaves. Instead, Professor Allen argues that Lincoln's awareness of the requirement to preserve and protect the Union's purity led him to emancipation in the time and the fashion that he accomplished it. Well, I think it's... um... A couple of points uh, come to mind. I think we have to add to this conversation as we think about Lincoln and the emancipation and his decisions of when and what. Uh, certainly, as is pointed out, um, Dr. Allen points out, um, you know, he could have just, you know, said we're going to enforce the Confiscation Act. But you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the question of property and not humanity. Uh, and so the, the principle of an emancipation uh, certainly distinguishes it and sets it aside uh, from what was already taking place in terms of the Confiscation Acts. But I think, and I would love to hear how Dr. Allen adds this in, is that we can talk about the, the principles of what he was trying to do, but we can't forget about the military and political expediency uh, for declaring a war, making this war about ending slavery. Uh, by the time we get to uh, the end of 1862, and you're absolutely right, you know, we have the benefit of looking back and knowing the outcome. But it was undetermined. Uh, you know, the, the, the Confederacy didn't have to defeat the North. They just had to keep from being defeated. Uh, and it was unclear uh, if the North could pull that off, if the federal government could pull that off. And so when you get that Antietam moment, which is not a victory or a defeat, it's kind of a holding. Uh, and so he can issue this preliminary emancipation proclamation um, at that time. And he does. He takes advantage of that. But now what do we do, though, with the parts of the Emancipation Proclamation that say, for example, you got 100 days, right? Like, like this isn't like, okay, now this is a what, like, no, you got 100 days. Is this 
What do we make of that, right? If you lay down your arms uh, within 100 days and you can keep your enslaved people, I have an opportunity at this time to actually emancipate or declare those people who are in uh, who are being held in bondage in states that are still under union control, that I could set them free now with the strike, but I choose not to. That's the political expediency. But then adding in as well the military component, right? I mean, the the if 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 nobody is free by the Emancipation Proclamation, the one thing that it does do is that it opens the door for raising troops among African Americans, right? And 185,000 will serve. I mean, the military expediency of passing this document, of, pa- of making this a war for slavery, and specifically opening up the doors to recruit African-Americans in that Black folk have been clamoring for since Fort, since before Fort Sumner. Like, if we're going to go to battle, right, then you need, then let us go to battle. Let us wear the Union blue. So I think, yes, there is, you know, Lincoln is ha- certainly having these conversations. But, you know, I think, and I probably would argue, right, even more important, Right. Are these military are the military uh, calculation as well as the political calculation. Right. Uh, which included keeping Britain and France out of the war, out, not recognizing uh, the Confederacy. Right. Because they had already abolished slavery in their in their territories, in their colonies and the like. And so they knew that their citizens would not accept them recognizing the Confederacy. So uh, so I I think we got to add that to the conversation, as well as the fact, one last piece, one last piece, as well as the fact that, you know, Lincoln going in is like, I'm not trying to end slavery. I'm trying to preserve the Union. Right. I mean, he's going into the war. Right. He he has to grow into this position. and, And and I'm a little skeptical, too about this idea of Lincoln's vision of, of sort of one one nation with all his folk. Because when he begins to think and contemplate about emancipation, he's like, I don't know if we could do this with all these black people here. If we set them free, we may have to find someplace else for them to go. And he's sending emissaries down into Central America saying, maybe we got to find some place. So I'm, I'm a little skeptical about this grand vision of Lincoln early on that he grows into it, right? And I think we have to recognize that you could be you could be Lincoln, you could be an abolitionist, you could be on the right side of history, but we still got to recognize the dominant views of the time, which were rooted in white supremacy, and that he still clung to those, right? Like, yeah, I'm cool with Frederick Douglass, but I don't know about the rest of y'all as full and equal partners in humanity. So much but, to respond to there, but you know, <laughs> Professor Allen, both the question of political and military expediency and Professor Jeffrey's skepticism about Lincoln's grand vision, which he says was more focused on preserving the Union than, than freeing the slaves. Well, Professor Jeffries is absolutely correct that you are making decisions both in the military and the political sphere. In fact, you can't separate them. They're the same decision, ultimately. Mm-hmm. You make military decisions for political reasons, and you make political decisions for military reasons. Mm-hmm. And these things are highly interactive. They cannot be separated or teased out as if they were differing moments of decision. That is, it is no accident that he had Francis Lieber work on a law of war that defended the military necessity for ending slavery, all in the name of defending the Union. The delay in extending the Emancipation Proclamation was nothing other than a repetition of what he had argued since 1854, that we must stop the expansion of slavery, which he argued for on the conviction, if you stop this expansion, you will strangle it. You will, in fact, end it. Now, his notion of how you're going to end it over the long term i.e. without radical surgery, may have seemed to some people unacceptable. I'm prepared to hear that. But I can say this. I don't believe anybody can say it was insincere. 
that he actually did have a notion of how this would work ultimately to bring an end to slavery, and he worked consistently at it. When he found himself confronted with the reality of war, everything changed. Yes, he still held out all the branches of colonialization. We'll pay you for your slaves. He did everything possible to try to quell the violence and end slavery. That's the point I want to underscore. So when we say he made the war about slavery, in a certain sense, it was always about slavery. Lincoln knew that, even though he said it was to defend the Union, because Lincoln understood that the defense of the Union meant defending it on the grounds upon which slavery could not continue to exist. So he didn't have to elaborate beyond saying, I'm defending the Union, because his belief was firm that if he succeeded in that, it would mean the end of slavery. Jeffrey, if I could throw in, I agree, right? But here I think there is value and in, in, in to, to draw in somebody who Dr. Allen knows quite well, Dr. King, you know, how long, right? Like how long is it gonna take, right? It, it becomes a question of, yeah, this eventually will put a stranglehold on the institution of slavery if we cut off and we don't let it to expand. But is how long is that gonna take? Or Frederick Douglass would say, that's too long. Right? We have to end it now. Justice too long delayed is justice denied. I think that was part of the critique. You will certainly concede that anybody might say any length of time is too long or too short. But that becomes a question of simply calculating what it is that's possible, what is humanly possible in the circumstances. Now, circumstances are not always so kind as to allow you to calculate freely and deliberately and choose your moment. You sometimes have to respond to circumstances and let the moment choose you, and you must act accordingly. So, I, so what I would suggest is all we're saying is Lincoln is perfectly human. Yes, statesmanlike, but perfectly human, trying to reason out in a prudential manner how to reach the end in the circumstances that he faced, upholding the principles of Republican government, upholding the consent of the governed, and at the same time, moving in a direction that was clear to his understanding as early as 1838 already. So, so that what we're talking about, it seems to me, is not an either-or universe. And too often people present it as either-or. No, it wasn't the slaves are going to be free now, or they're never going to be free. The question always was, how could we get there safely? How could we free slaves and free them in a country that still is worth living in? So interesting. Um, you're debating, in part, the prudential question of how, how much longer, what, what was the most effective way to achieve Lincoln's goal. I wonder, Professor Jeffries, if you're also debating the question of the degree to which, as you've put it, slavery was much more than our country's original sin. Slavery is our country's origin. Uh, Professor Allen is arguing that for Lincoln, the Constitution never explicitly recognized slavery, and Lincoln was determined to allow slavery to atrophy on its own terms. But do you disagree, Professor Jeffries? And is it, is it your view that slavery was our country's original sin and, and the Constitution had to be radically changed in order to eradicate? I think certainly when we think about the Constitution and we think about slavery, Right, I mean, we're talking about a century and a half of slavery before we get to the Constitution. Right, I mean, this was foundational to all that America would become, uh, and we see, although we don't see the explicit language 
in the in the Constitution, sort of identifying slavery, we see that this is the one subject, if you will, when we think about the Atlantic slave trade, that could not be touched, that could not be discussed in Congress, right, for 20 years. I mean, we're seeing the, 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 these protections uh, with the fugitive slave cause uh, for the institution of slavery. And so, yes, I see uh, the Constitution as being a document that protects the institution of slavery uh, in several key terms and ways. Uh, and I think we got to wrestle with that, right? I mean, this is, but we shouldn't be surprised if you're bringing enslavers to the Constitutional Convention to write a document, they're not going to write themselves out of it, right? I mean, so they wrote protections for what they understood to be foundational to something that existed in all 13 colonies. And even in those colonies that would abolish slavery, you're still seeing it gradual, right? So they're gradual again, right? Slavery exists in New York until 1827, Connecticut until 1849. And so I, I say, when we look at the Constitution, we have to look at it, not just uh, you know, so strictly for the language is there, but what is the political reality of the people who are coming to the, to, coming together, and what are their interests, and what are they trying to protect and preserve, and what's the reality of what the Constitution does do, and how people interpret it uh, for the next uh, seventy five or so years. Thank you so much for that, Professor Allen. Professor Jeffries has just said the Constitution protects the institution of slavery in several key clauses, and explicitly, the enslaving framers wrote protections for slavery into the Constitution. Do you agree or disagree? Well, uh, Professor Jeffrey says we have to wrestle with that. And I have wrestled with it for over 50 years and published extensively on it. And, and I read it entirely differently. Not that there weren't accommodations to slavery, that we say everybody acknowledges, but that it protected slavery, quite the opposite. I don't believe James Madison was mistaken when in 1789 on the floor of the House of Representatives, he argued that the 20 year limitation before being able to prohibit the importation of slaves was meant to signal the disdain for slavery, not to protect slavery. It was political reality that forced the delay, but it was moral resolve that led to the expression that we will do it. If we can't do it now, we'll do it in 20 years. Similarly, we go back to 1619 and we say it was the foundation as if it were the only foundation. Of course, slaves were brought here. So that was part of the foundation. No one can deny that. Stephen Hopkins was on the Mayflower too. What people don't recognize is that Stephen Hopkins was also at Jamestown in 1609. Stephen Hopkins was not an officer. He was not an aristocrat. He was literate, he was a clerk, was brought by the aristocratic adventurers to Jamestown because they needed someone to do some work there. While he was there, he got in trouble for popping off. He was a loudmouth. The only thing he could conceivably have really been complaining about was the terrible treatment of the natives. And he was actually sentenced to die for his mouth. They, as it were, gave him clemency, not because they regretted their sentence, but because he was the only one there doing any work and the aristocrats couldn't get anything out of the natives and couldn't, wouldn't do any work themselves and they needed it. As it turned out, his wife in England died and he had to return to take care of his orphan children. That's how he avoided the catastrophe at Jamestown. He didn't die with the rest of them. So he ended up where? In 1619 on the Mayflower, coming with that group who was part of that settlement. And there in Massachusetts, he got in trouble again. He was running a public house in addition to other duties. And he had this terrible problem. He would set, let anybody come in. 
anybody could enjoy his board and his drink. And the, the governors there thought that was very casual and not appropriate. In other words, Stephen Hopkins was part of that founding generation who evinced a sense of equality and openness and inclusiveness. And that was part of the founding story also, which is getting broad brushed away in this general notion of the foundation being slavery. In the third generation, another Stephen Hopkins was governor of Rhode Island and also a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Somehow between the original Stephen Hopkins and the third generation Stephen Hopkins, the third ended up owning a couple of slaves. He acquired them, he was a traitor. And of course, in this atmosphere where people were doing this and questioning it was perhaps limited, he too fell into it. However, he came to the conviction that it was wrong morally. And not only was he a signer of the Declaration, but he was at that point already a manumitter of his slaves. Now that's one story that begins with an ordinary soul, not some extraordinary person that says it was a richer society than it's giving note of when we talk about the foundation of the country being slavery. And those strains are the same strains that are picked up by Jean Jerome Ferris, who painted the picture of Lincoln and the contraband. Ferris paints this picture in the 1880s. He was only born in 1862, so he didn't witness any of that. But he had imbibed a sense of what transpired. And his celebration of the emancipation was precisely that beautiful portrait he created of Lincoln and the contraband, conveying that there was a sentiment abroad in the land that this was meaningful, this was important. And it wasn't simply that a stroke of lightning came from heaven and severed the, those in bondage from their enslavers, leaving the two ever separated, never to unite again. And you reproduce Jean-Léon Jerome's Ferris's portrait, Lincoln and the Contraband, in your article about the Emancipation Proclamation. Professor Jeffries, Professor Allen just made a lot of uh, strong statements, including noting Madison's statements about the delay of the clause banning the importation of enslaved people as a sign of moral disdain for slavery, not support, and then telling the story of founders like Hopkins, who, although owned, were enslavers, did emancipate their slaves on moral grounds. Uh, what's your response? You know, when we think about the sort of that 1619 moment, if you will, uh, and we think about slavery in the early uh, American colonies, uh, I think the point to be made is the colonists had choices. They had choices. Uh, they had choices to continue to uh, expand and extend uh, and grow the institution of slavery. Uh, they had choices about whether to racialize the institution of slavery. They had choices about whether uh, to encode and embed this racialized version in the institution of slavery. Now, they're not making these decisions in, in, in choosing a particular path in 1619, right? I mean, they're going along with what the, the, the transatlantic world and European nations are doing. But by the time we get to the 1640s, by the time we get to the 1670s, by the time we get to the 1700s, those choices are clear that the trajectory and the path that these colonists uh, have set upon, right, in, which included not just sort of the egalitarian views of sort of openness and receptivity, that, that's there, right? Not denying that that's there, but there's an equal uh, and strong and, and, and perhaps even stronger element that is saying, you know what? we can create the society that has room for democracy and equality for some, but not for these black folk. 
and our economies will turn on our enslavement of these folks. It doesn't happen overnight. I mean, that's the thing, right? There are choices that are being made uh, by those who are in positions of power to move in a particular direction. And we will continue to move in that direction throughout that entire colonial period. And we don't break from that direction which is critically important in 1776 or 1787. So you're absolutely right. I mean, James Madison, right? I mean, this is, this is, you know, he's one of our great political thinkers, but he also didn't free the 100 or so enslaved people that he had, right? So we may say, you know, like, yeah, you know, he thought this was going to bring about the slow end of it, but it doesn't end within his lifetime and he doesn't do anything to bring it about, even among those he controlled. And so I think choices are being made as well, large scale macro political choices, but then I think we also, if we want to look at the stories, we've got to look at the stories of the individuals and the choices that they are making, even when they're surrounded by people who are making different decisions and different choices, right? Like, they, they, like James Madison's boys, his boys are telling him, right? Like, yo, this ain't the right thing to do, right? I mean, and yet they're providing these protections and don't separate themselves. And I think that needs to be, we got to acknowledge that. That needs to be a part of the conversation uh, because it also is speaking to uh, how the nation would develop and the, and the, and the choices that uh, the nation's leaders would be making. Let me just interrupt Jeffrey by basics to say I completely agree. I, I think it is true, choices are being made. And, and the thing that's important in Professor Jeffrey's remark is that different choices are being made by different people. It is true there is an historical tendency and direction to choices. That's why we get to a crisis. But it is also true that there are forces internal to that dynamic that are leading in opposite directions. And if we don't give due credit to the forces leading against slavery, we will never understand what happened to slavery. That is the critical factor that needs to be paid. It is not a question of when, it's a question of the reality that there was that stress built in. The cancer was present. The cancer did need to be removed. James Madison did, well, I must correct him on that. It's not that he did nothing. Is that the little that he did was worth nothing, i.e. becoming titular head of the colonization society. So, so that he and Jefferson in embracing this dispersion theory as their hope for solving the problem of slavery were feckless to an extreme degree. I have no problem agreeing with that. And as far as racialization is concerned, I would only say this. Slavery doesn't really become racialized in this country until Jefferson publishes the notes on the state of Virginia in Query 14 and specifically racializes it. That's a long way, that's 1784. That's a long way into the process. Well, if I could just add, it might be a minor note, but I think, I think that Allah would appreciate. I agree, right, with Jefferson as he's theorizing on it. I mean, that's where we're getting to theorize. But when we look at law, Right. And we look at go back to 16, you know, 1671 in Virginia and these various laws that are defining uh, a person's status through the inheritance uh, of through the through the, through the status of the mother. Uh, I would make an argument that legally, even though we're not having this sort of theoretically written out legally, we're defining uh, and, and uh, in perpetuity uh, that slavery would be connected uh, to Africanness or to blackness. Just a quick note. That particular process signifies what had happened throughout human history and provisions for succession and inheritance in every society, whether it affected slave property or other property. They're all talked about in terms of whether succession will run through female line or male line. That was just traditional. Yes, but but in the colonies, see, this is where I think slavery becomes so, so fundamental, because now we're actually going against English tradition. 
right? Like the, the, the colonists weren't suddenly these, these these great feminists who were like, let's empower women and follow this matriarchal, this matrilineal line. Like, I mean, English, English common law said, no, this goes, the power descends from the father. But suddenly when you start having these enslaved women and native indigenous women uh, who are having children by white men, right, who can then have a claim on them, suddenly now it's an issue and we need to change where the status of the line comes through. I, th- I, think, this, I, I think we have to connect those two. Of course you do. That's what I'm saying. What I'm saying mm. is doing, making that connection is traditional throughout human history. Mm. Different options in different places. I could tell you it's different under the Salic law. Uh, therefore, in, in the German forest than it was in England. And if we could find this in Rome, we can find it in Greece. Everybody goes through that process and they will make the decision differently in different historical periods. What's so illuminating about this, this important discussion is its subtlety. And I wonder, uh, Professor, I, I hear you both saying that there were forces leading in both directions at the time of the founding, both enlightenment commitments to equality and, and choices that were made that thwarted that goal. Professor Jeffries, do, do you think that that means that it's too simplistic to say that the Constitution at its origin was either anti-slavery or pro-slavery, but in fact, it was something in between? No, I'm willing to choose a side. I'm willing to choose a side on this. <laughs> in, this in the sense of, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to promote the institution of slavery, right, in, in, in order to provide protections for it. I mean, we, we understand that compromises are being made. That doesn't mean that it's equally 50-50 in terms of what the, the, the you know, what the, you have these inputs, right, and then what the output is. And I would say the output bends the, bends the, the, the cast what will become the foundational legal document. There's nothing higher in the United States but the U.S. Constitution, right? It's higher than God, right? It's the Constitution. I think that bends us, that bends us towards protecting the institution of slavery. I got to say God is higher, Professor Jeffries, Uh, and and, and that's why the declaration is higher also, because the moral authority and not the positive provisions are what determine the inclinations of the society. Uh, uh, One quick question about the Constitution again, just to show how subtle this is, as you said, Jeffrey. Uh, The three-fifths clause does not fail to affirm the humanity of Africans. It, it is affirmed specifically the humanity of free Africans when it is first adopted in 1783. We have had for a long time a false narrative about that that leads us, therefore, into blind paths, thinking everything was simply squarely set in a racist trajectory when it was not. So recovering the actual details of the history is extremely helpful to widen our conception of the possibilities that were there. And to some degree, that will make us even harsher critics of people who didn't follow out those possibilities fully. But on the other hand, it ought to make us more patient in trying to understand what the obstacles were to doing so. Professor Jeffries, are you, uh, what, what are the implications for your view about how to teach uh, slavery in the Constitution, which is obviously a central mission of the NCC. Professor Allen says the more subtlety and detail we study, the better. Do you, do you agree or, or, or disagree? Oh, no, absolutely. I fully agree with that. Um, I think we have to interrogate. I think we have to put into context. I think we have to uh, look at uh, as closely and as we can, to what extent that we can, you know, so the thinking of framers uh, in, in, in particular clauses and debates, uh, whether we're talking about three-fifths and representation and the like, 
And, and we have to take look closely. And, and nobody knows this better than Dr. Allen, sort of, you know, sort of, you know, James Madison, right? I mean, he becomes the one through whom we are reading these constitutional debates and the like in the Federalist Papers. And so, no, as much as possible, I think we have to put into context. But what I would like, what I think we should do as well, and I don't think we necessarily do this enough, is, you know, even with somebody like Madison, right? Or, you know, we have to say, well, what were their lives, right? I mean, so so certainly, you know, somebody like Madison is, you know, one of the best read people, uh, you know, in, in the colonies, in the new nation, but he's also an enslaver, right? So yeah, you know, he can draw upon his library uh, and, and, you know, to craft what would become, you know, this, this, this grand experiment in American democracy and then think about sort of what the Bill of Rights would be and these, these, these core protections um, that government should not infringe upon. But he also has to just look out of the window of his front library, right? And think about all the rights that he's denying the 100 or so people that he's holding in bondage uh, to reaffirm. Uh, what rights are necessary uh, that should never be infringed upon for a person to be free in this society, to be a free human being. So I think part of that context, part of looking at the nuance is who are we talking about? Uh, what were their lives? And this isn't something that, you know, with slavery, you know, Madison, he's a third generation enslaver, right? This is the family business, Right. We can't separate that from the political decisions, the political outlook, the arguments and the debates that are happening uh, in that on on that convention floor. Professor Allen, is it important, uh, as Professor Jeffrey suggests, to tell the story of how individual founders did or didn't live up to their ideals? It's true that Madison, as you suggested, too, was uh, nominally he was feckless, was, was your adjective. You know, by contrast, uh, Washington did eventually free his enslaved uh, population on his death. And we just came across at the NCC a fascinating quotation from Patrick Henry, where he said, is it not amazing that I, who denounced slavery as a violation of natural law, my cell phone slaves, I do not justify it and I do not attempt to defend it. So he acknowledged the hypocrisy. Is it important to to sort of tell those individual stories to help uh, students make up their own minds? Well, I don't know how much it will help students, but it's important to tell the story because people need to know the truth. It is the truth that is helpful. It is not the storytelling. And that's what I like to reaffirm constantly to people. Don't think your story is important in and of itself. What's important is that people have the free opportunity to discover the truth for themselves. In Washington's case, for example, it's easy to say, he exploited slaves throughout his whole life and then told them they were free when he could no longer make any use of them because he was dying. But that would fail to understand what actually happened. He didn't just free his slaves, including slaves entailed to him, but whom he never possessed or had any contact with because it was a mere legal relationship. But he provided for them. And he undertook to put himself in a position to do that despite spending an extraordinarily long period of time not being able to give immediate attention to his own estate. He nevertheless was able to pull things together sufficiently. That was his form of reparations, you might say. But it wasn't just reparations. It wasn't say, here, I owe you this. It was a sense of humanity. Having become convicted of the wrongness of slavery, he was further convicted that it would be immoral to take people held in bondage and say to them on one day, you're free, you can go now when there's no particular place for them to go, when there's no one waiting to receive them, there's no provision for them. So we have to look at them in the broadest possible manner 
not merely in the sense of asking the question, did they or did they not have slaves? This is indeed, as our uh, NCC intern Colin Thibault suggests, an amazing conversation. We have time for just a few of the questions which are um, heating up the question box. Our friend and uh, board member Derek Roman asks, to what degree was the recognition of Juneteenth as a national holiday a performative action versus a substantive act to address reconciliation and reparation? How did the professors recognize the holiday? Uh, Professor Jeffords. Well, I think it is a, a modest uh, move, uh, a symbolic move, a modest move, a modest endeavor, but I think it is meaningful. Uh, I, you know, it, it is clear uh, nobody, uh, you know, at, coming out of the, the, the protests of 2020, uh, where African-Americans are calling for an end to uh, police violence, calling for an end to uh, qualified immunity for police. Uh, they don't get that, but they get a national holiday. Uh, so in that sense, you know, Juneteenth as a national holiday isn't lifting anybody out of poverty, right? There was no reparations check that came along with the holiday. Uh, at least I didn't get mine in the mail. Uh, but it is meaningful still, right? Because if we take this moment to say, let's, for the first time as a nation, uh, let's pause and look back at the long and terrible history of slavery. Let's take a moment and look back at that moment of emancipation and what that would bring. Let's take a moment and look back at the time when America moved closer towards becoming a multiracial uh, democracy. And let's pause and look back and see what happened to it. What happened to the promise and potential of reconstruction? Uh, if we can take that, maybe we won't end poverty, but we certainly can begin a conversation that will help us understand the persistence of racialized poverty in America. And if we do that, if we use the, the national holiday as a moment of education, where we can come together and sit and learn, and I always can enjoy sitting and listening and learning uh, to Dr. Allen and these opportunities, then that is when uh, this holiday will become meaningful. It won't become meaningful uh, if we're sitting around buying uh, uh, red, black, and green mattresses, which is, is what America is going to do eventually, right? But if we keep it focused on this opportunity to have honest conversation and talk about these truths, talk about these facts about the American past and present, then I think it is something special. Well, all of our uh, listeners who are lucky enough to hear both of you listen and learn um, each time you convene. And because our one rule here is that we end on time, I'll ask uh, Professor Allen to, to have the last word. You know, in a version responding to Derek Roman's question, after this remarkably illuminating discussion, to what degree do you see the recognition of Juneteenth as a performative versus a substantive act? And how would uh, and how do you recognize the holiday? Well, I must in all candor confess that I see it as purely performative with the goal of corralling black sentiment. And to that degree, I consider it unfortunate. I think black people are perfectly capable without that kind of sponsorship of expressing themselves fully and completely. And as I reflect on this question of taking time to look back on slavery and all of the disasters that followed the end of slavery insofar as repression followed that, I would simply observe we've never stopped looking back. And I think the time has come for us to ask the question, isn't it time to discover something that will enable us to look forward? Thank you so much, Professor Jeffries and Professor Allen for providing a model, a shining model of thoughtful civil agreement and disagreement and debate and for urging us to 
learn about historical complexity and recognize that we can reach different conclusions about its meaning, but we have an obligation to grow in learning through conversations like this. It is an honor to host uh, conversations with you both, and I can't wait for the next one. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, thank you both, and thanks to all for listening. Happy Judy. Thank you. Today's show was produced by John Guerra, Lana Ulrich, Melody Rao, and me, Tanea Tauber. It was engineered by Dave Stotts. Research was provided by Colin Tebow, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. For a list of resources mentioned throughout this episode, visit constitutioncenter.org debate. While you're there, check out our upcoming shows and register to join us virtually. You can join us via Zoom, watch our live YouTube stream, or watch the videos on demand in our media library at constitutioncenter.org constitution. If you like the show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or by following us on Spotify. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.